I'm glad I came this morning. I know what is this going on here anyway. Uh, every time I talk about something that's the least bit, uh, you know, whatever, we have visitors from 14 states. <laughs> what is it? Anyway, God is good all the time. All, the time. all right, one more time. I'm going to tell you this. Uh, it's an adult topic, and uh, we did something special for the kids uh, nine and on up to whatever. Uh, I'm just saying we have a class over here in the teen room, and uh, you're welcome to go now if you want to over to the teen room. If parents uh, would see it that way, but if not, then you're in here. And, and it's not that I don't think uh, uh, a child, well, not my call. All right. All right, several things have been in the news lately, big things. Probably nothing bigger than the decision of the uh, Supreme Court of our United States concerning same-sex marriage. And up until about a month ago, only 14 states had actually approved this. There are 36 other states that had not. In fact, in many cases, those, uh, in those 36 states, the referendums have been put on the ballot and those states had voted to ban <laughs> the concept or the right of same-sex marriage in that state, only to have it overturned by some, uh, some court or something in the state. Anyway, um, in many cases, same-sex marriage had been defeated at the ballot box more than once, and when you can't get what you want through the ballot box, then you go to the court. And the Supreme Court has brushed aside uh, those 36 states, and now all 50 states must allow uh, the marriage, and recognize the marriage of uh, those people of the same sex. Well, I've got some good news for you this morning, and i got some bad news. The good news is God's still on his throne. The word of God still stands and will stand forever. At the end of this life, uh, what's in this book is going to be the basis of judgment, and our basis of grace will be the cross. It will be Jesus Christ. And um, how God deals with each one of us at that time, we'll, uh, we're, we're hoping and praying and believing that God's grace will prevail for those of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ. But the word of God stands. Jesus says, uh, Matthew twenty four thirty five, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, 24 and 25, he says, all flesh is as grass. And the glory of the flesh is like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of the Lord abides forever. So the good news is the word of God still stands, still says what it says. Nothing's changed in heaven. And more good news is that because the word of God stands, the promises of God to his people still stands too. And we are very thankful for that. John said this in 1 John 2, 12 through 15. He said, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life are not of the Father, but of the world. The world passes away, and the lust thereof. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Those are 
wonderful promises, wonderful words that God has given to us. I'm so thankful for those, and it's still good news. It's going to be good news. It'll be good news in eternity, won't it? Here's the bad news. The bad news is probably there's nothing we can do uh, to undo this decision that's been made uh, for our country, at least not in the short run. In many ways, we are living in a world that's very similar to first century Rome. Uh, on the outside of it, there's a lot of immorality. There's a lot of materialism. There's a lot of things with a lot of similarities, but there's one huge difference between Rome in the first century and our present time, and that is the, the world of Rome was moving away from the pantheon, moving away from paganism, and running toward Christianity. They were tired of their old gods. They were tired of what that had produced for them in their lives. They were looking for something new, something different, something better, and they heard about Christ, and the people ran to Christ. But here in the West, in our modern world, the direction is just the opposite. In the modern Western countries, the population is running away from Christianity because they believe that Christianity is the problem. That would be a lot of people's opinion, that we are the problem, that the Bible is the problem, the Christian religion is the problem, and so they are running away. This is not true throughout the whole world. The third world countries are... Uh, moving in the opposite direction. <laughs> they, they've had enough of uh, uh, animism and paganism and pantheism and all that uh, voodoo and all the things that, that the rest of the world has been embroiled in. They've, they've seen it. They've lived it. They've got the hat, the shirt, the DVD, the book, and everything else. They know all about it, and then they're done with it. And in third world countries like Africa and South America and parts of Asia, especially India, those people are running to Christ in numbers that have never been seen before. It's just here. For some strange reason, in this part of the world, people are running away. I can't possibly cover everything in one lesson. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to mention a few things here, maybe in passing. I'll just say this. Tonight, uh, instead of having our Bible class that we were working on, First Corinthians, I just want to kind of continue this. But in the class tonight, uh, just kind of open it up for you to make comments, to ask questions. Um, uh, there are some, uh, I, I laid out a couple sheets of paper back there. This is a list of articles you need to read, <laughs> okay? Uh, they're available online, but uh, if need be, I can, I've got hard copies of these things. I can make them for you. But uh, we'll be looking at some of these, uh, some of these articles. The, the most interesting to me is what has happened in Canada since 2005, and they passed their own same-sex law, and how that has affected uh, things there. Uh, you will be surprised, and it will be a, a warning to us here in the United States. Anyway, uh, that's the bad news. We're going to be here tonight. We'll, we'll talk about this some more. All right, let's go. Gay activists have recognized for a long time that one of the biggest obstacles they faced in overcoming, uh, getting their agenda installed and legalized in all of this was the Bible and the influence of the Bible here in among the people of the United States. The Bible in the Old and New Testament condemns homosexual practice, and the gay community uh, realized that if they're going to do anything, if they're going to make any progress at all, they had to attack. They had to do something about the influence of the word. 
So the gay community has dealt with this in three ways. And it's the gay community along with the media and with uh, academia too, all have worked together to say basically three things about the Bible. The first thing they say is the Bible is outdated. It was written at a time when there was no real understanding of homosexuality, and therefore we cannot trust the words, the warnings, the things that are said in the Bible concerning homosexuality. It's born of ignorance and not of knowledge. The second thing that uh, the gay community has tried to do with the Bible is to reinterpret the scriptures. They have tried to reinterpret the scriptures that uh, obviously or and from most people's lights, condemn homosexual practice. And they want to say it's not that God is condemning all homosexual relationships, just homosexuality practiced in certain uh, circumstances. And they say what God really is concerned about are the circumstances under which the homosexual practice is given, not the homosexuality itself. We'll, we'll get to that some more. And the third thing that is said is uh, that uh, they've tried to say that homosexuality is natural, that it's a part of God's creation, that God is the one who created the homosexual, and how can that person's desire, their orientation, so to speak, be wrong? And how unfair would God be to create a homosexual and then consign him or her to a life of celibacy? So those are kind of the three, and, and we could say many more because it's a, it, there's all kinds of variations of, of this, but I just tried to boil it down to maybe three that we could, we could count off here. Now, I, I'm going to put up on the screen here a chart that I've seen on the Internet. Well, actually Facebook. And uh, this has been around since 2012, and I know it's too small, but we're going to, as we go through this chart, we're going to single out a certain portion of it and blow it up so you can see what this is about. But it looks like this, and, and you, you've probably seen this. Like I say, it's been around since 2012. Um, I'm going to go through this chart. There are six reasons that the author of this chart believes that Christians oppose gay marriage and homosexual practice. And he gives those six, and then he gives a reason, a response to each of those reasons that he believes Christians are involved with to say, you're stupid and you're wrong. <laughs> Maybe not in those words, but not far off, okay, uh, to, to explain why that reason is not valid. And then at the end, you get to be uh, on board with the whole idea of gay marriage and all that, and you put aside your Neanderthal-type thinking that would uh, condemn gay marriage. Um, just want to say this, uh, if your child is on Facebook, I can almost guarantee you they've seen this, this particular chart or some variation of it. And I'm interested, how many of you, uh, I know a lot of you in here are on Facebook, how many of you have seen this chart? Just raise your hand if you've seen this thing before. Are you serious? That's all? Oh, well, get your hands up there if, so I can see. That's pitiful. <laughs> Where have you been? You've been living under a rock? <laughs> okay no it, it's out there and it's been around quite a bit and uh, I, I just want to talk about this but here's what I want to tell you I guarantee you that if your child has been on Facebook they've seen that they've seen that chart and they've read it and they've thought about it and it probably has had some impact on their thinking and 
I know that we ask our kids to go out uh, because of what we're talking about here this morning, just, on, just to be safe, so to speak. But after you've heard everything I've got to say, you might want to get the DVD uh, of this lesson and sit down and look at this chart and just listen to this lesson and talk to your kid about what, what's here. I, yeah, I mean, it's up to you. That's, uh, that's your child, and you need to uh, you know, make the judgment there. But uh, I think that would be a good idea. But here's what, here's what the chart says. So you still think homosexuality is sinful, and therefore gays shouldn't be allowed to marry. And then we just go right across, so you see there's one, two, three, four, five, six. Six little columns, and each of those columns represents a, re, uh, a reason that a Christian might give, but, you know, the, the person who made the charts thinking that, and then his response to, to that. And we just go through the, the whole chart. We're going to work our way through each one of those reasons. I want you to think about what it says. So here's the first reason. Let's, let's get that one up there. So you think homosexuality is, uh, you still think homosexuality is a sin and therefore gay should not marry. Why do you think that? And there's the first reason, because Jesus said so. That's what the man who made the chart is thinking we, is going on inside of us, because Jesus said so. And then his response is not true. Jesus never uttered a word about same-sex relationships. And the thinking is, therefore, if Jesus said nothing about it, it can't be wrong. It's all right. It's okay. So there's a small amount of truth in, 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 in what's being said here. But there's three things I want to say. Jesus never said anything about directly about same-sex relationships. That's true. But it wouldn't follow that the fact that he didn't say anything would make it all right. There's all kinds of things that Jesus never mentioned directly. He never mentioned rape directly, or incest, or bestiality, or abortion, or polygamy, or arson, or embezzlement, or slavery, or pedophilia. He didn't mention any of those things directly. Does that mean they're okay? I mean, most people would uh, understand that's not the way it is. But Jesus never mentions any of these directly, but I don't think any of us would, would then agree that they must be all right because Jesus didn't say anything about it. Second thing I want to say here is Jesus never mentions same-sex relationships, but he does mention marriage. He tells us what a marriage is. When Jesus mentions marriage, he, he, he tells us, what, this is Matthew chapter 19, and that was our scripture reading for today. So some Pharisees came to Jesus testing him and asking him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And he answered and said, okay, he goes from the question of divorce, he goes back to the beginning, he goes back to what is marriage about? What is marriage? And he says to these Pharisees, he says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. These are Jesus' words about marriage. So they are no longer two, but one flesh, what therefore God has joined together let no man separate. So as you read what Jesus says here, Jesus tells us what a marriage is. And uh, it's two people, one of them male, one of them female. They're joined together by God. And that is the basis of marriage because the, the next thing he quotes there is Genesis 2.26. And those are the, or 2.24. Those are the words where at the end of this, uh, of uh, Adam and Eve and, and all that happened there, this statement is made by Moses 
this reason. A man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife. Moses sees something there. He said, this is the basis of marriage. So Jesus defines marriage here. And in defining marriage, what he does is he eliminates the possibility of same-sex marriage. He has spoken. He didn't tell us what it was, and he told us what it was. And uh, there's not much room in Jesus' words. There is no room in Jesus' words for same-sex marriage. Here's the third thing I want to tell you. It's not exactly true to say that Jesus never mentioned same-sex relationships. Because Jesus spoke through his apostles, and the apostles of Christ did have quite a lot to say, or did have something to say about same-sex relationships. On the night before Jesus was crucified, he is with his disciples in the upper room. It's just him and the eleven at this point. Uh, Judas has already left. He's going out to do his, uh, his deed uh, to finish up his betrayal of Jesus. And as Jesus is there, he talks to his disciples about something that they could anticipate. He says, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, or he will take of mine. He'll take what I am telling him, and he will disclose it to you. Jesus says, you know, a lot of things I'd like to tell you now, you're just not ready. Uh, Some things have to happen, some time has to pass. But there's all kinds of things I would love to tell you, but I can't, but... And I'm leaving, so what are we going to do? He said, I'm sending the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is not going to be talking to you. I'm going to be talking to you through the Holy Spirit. He's not going to speak on his own initiative. He's going to speak what he hears from me, and he's going to tell it to you. And in this way, everything that I would love to say to you right now before I leave, he's going to say over the course of time after I've left. So now let's think about the apostles. That changes my, you know, some people have what I call red-letter theology. In other words, they think that the, the red letters of Jesus, that, you know, we have that red-letter edition. And, and the red letters are more important than the black letters in their way of thinking. So, and the only ones they want to be concerned about are the red letters. Let me tell you something. Take your entire New Testament and paint it red. <laughs> because it's all from Jesus through the Spirit. You understand what I'm saying? And that's the verse that says it right there. Every bit of it is read. Jesus did speak directly about same-sex relationships through the apostles. The apostles were his spokesmen. So let me read some things that the apostles had to say, that Jesus had to say to the apostles. I'm going to start with Romans chapter 1. I'm going to read a few verses, and then we're going to put the rest of it up on the screen here. I'm, I'm looking at Romans 1, 18, starting there. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. And so what he's saying is, he said, there's nobody out there who doesn't know that there's a God. And he said, you can see that in the creation. In fact, you, you know he exists, and you learn something about him as you observe the creation. He said, so there's nobody without excuse. No one who can say, I, I don't know anything about God. And what Paul is doing in, in, uh, in the broad sweep of things here is he's saying, everyone stands accountable before God. 
on some basis. Even the guy that's never doesn't have a Bible, doesn't have any. Uh, no one's come and told him anything. He said, "Hey, he's got the world. He's got the creation to look at, and that's going to tell him a lot about God." But he, so there we are. Verse twenty-one: For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Verse 22, now let's go from here. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of a corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. He's talking about idolatry. The idols were generally some kind of representation of natural forces or creatures that were seen, that, that people had experienced. Instead of worshiping the God who created these things, the world fell into the worship of idols. They worship the creature rather than the creator. And one of the things about uh, idolatry is ultimately it is a worship of yourself because idolatry puts you in charge of your world. Idolatry is a worship of yourself. And that's, that's what happens to these people here. So uh, what are we reading here? All right. Verse 25 what, verse 24, therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. So first of all, we, we fall into idolatry and the worship of self. That's the progression here. Once you reject uh, God as creator and what can be known about God from just creation, the next thing that happens is idolatry. So now just follow this out now. Let's go to verse 26. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts, and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. And he follows a path here from rejecting the God of creation to idolatry and the worship of self to this depravity, which, as you read this, you understand this is, this is homosexual behavior. It's what it is, homosexual activity. God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. So Jesus is responsible for those words right there. Paint those words in red. Jesus spoke directly about same-sex relationships, and there it is. All right. Another place we want to look is 1 Corinthians 6, 9, 10, and 11. Again, Jesus speaks to his apostles. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Again, these are words of Jesus through the apostles to this world. And then we'll go to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8, 9, and 10. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious. For the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, 
for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. And I'm just reading these verses to say, yes, Jesus did speak directly about same-sex relationships. And he says, no. He says, they're wrong. They're depraved. And he said, but it's not a part of Christian's life. And as in the case of the Corinthians there, he says, you know, you guys used to be involved in all this. He said, that's what you used to be. He said, We've, you've come out of it. He said, that's good. All right, so that's the first one. I'm not going to take as long with the rest of these, so don't get, don't get worried. But that was the first one, that uh, because Jesus said so. Well, yes, he did. And he's pretty clear about it, isn't he? Let's go back to the chart. This is the second reason that uh, our the creator of the chart says, why do you think that homosexuality is wrong? Because the Old Testament said so. And he said, well, yeah, you think the Old Testament, and so he's kind of lumping all of us together here. He says the Old Testament also says, this is his response to that, the Old Testament also says it's sinful to eat shellfish, to wear clothes woven with different fabrics, and to eat pork. Should we still live by the Old Testament laws? And he's saying this because he believes that there are a lot of uh, modern-day churches that are still dipping back into the Old Testament just to justify what they're teaching or what they're practicing. And to some extent, he's, it's right. There are some churches that spend a lot of time in the Old Testament proving things that they want to say should happen today, should exist today. However, in our case, no. We understand. I mean, we, we figured it out. We're living under a new covenant. And to, for all practical purposes, what he says here to us, to this situation here, not true. It doesn't apply to us. We're not, we're not buying the Old Testament. Uh, it, it's not that we don't say it's inspired. It's not that we don't say it's, it belongs to God. And, and, and if, but the things that are there are a part of a covenant that belong to the Jewish people. We live under a covenant that God has made with all people, a new covenant, the covenant that came through Christ. And if things in the Old Testament are repeated in the New Testament, fine. We're, we're on board. We're with it. But to simply go back to the Old Testament and pull something out that is not repeated or supported in some way in, our, in the new covenant, we don't go there. We don't do that. So, you know, uh, that, that argument might work for some, uh, some people. It, it doesn't work for us. But anyway, that's, uh, that's the second reason there. Let's go ahead and take a look at the, uh, at the third reason here. Well, I'll, uh, let me just, I, I missed something here. If we did use the Old Testament, here's what the Old Testament says. And I'll just do this so that you can see. Leviticus 18 and 22. You shall not lie with a male as one, ma one lies with a female. It is an abomination. Leviticus 20 and 13. If there's a man who lies with a male as those who lie with a woman, both of them have committed a detestable act. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood guiltiness is upon them. If we believed in the Old Testament as, as binding upon us today, we would be looking at those verses. I'm showing them to you so you can see what he's talking about. All right, let's go on to the third reason. And here we are. Why do you still think that homosexuality is sinful and therefore there should not be anything like gay marriage? And the third reason he gives here is be, Christian people might say this because the New Testament says so. Now, here's his response, because he says the original language of the New Testament actually refers to male prostitution, molestation, or promiscuity, not committed same-sex relationships. Paul may have spoken against homosexuality, but he also said 
that women should be silent and never assume authority over a man. So he's talking to those who are following the New Testament. Uh, And his question is, should New Testament churches, shall modern-day churches live by all of Paul's values? My answer is yes, (laughs) they should, because they're not Paul's values, they're Jesus' values. Jesus is speaking through the apostles. The gay movement has tried to say that the reason God forbids homosexual practice is because it was often part of pagan rituals and worship of idols, and that what God is really forbidding when he says no to the homosexuality is he's actually saying no to homosexuality practice before a pagan idol. So as I said, it's the circumstances that uh, this was practiced in that he is speaking against. It's not the homosexual act itself. But when you go back to Romans chapter 1, 26, 27, 28, I think it's pretty clear that it's not just the circumstances that God's concerned about. It's, it's the act. It's, the, it's the what's going on inside the person themselves. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For the women exchange natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to those things which are not proper. Those things all happened in front of uh, pagan idols, I, I agree, and also prostitution, heterosexual sex acts were practiced there too. But it's not just the fact that this is happening in front of a pagan idol that is in view here. It's the act itself. They're called indecent. They're called degrading, unnatural, depraved, not proper. There's the words. And I'm saying you're slicing your bologna way too thin if you're going to hang, if you're going to say that this is the distinction that needs to be made between homosexuality as practiced in the Bible's condemning and homosexuality as it's practiced today. Uh, I would not want to go to judgment uh, and try to explain that to God. I don't think that works. So, as for Paul's teaching about women remaining silent, it's a non, that's a non-starter for us too. I recognize that many churches don't observe that teaching we're not one of them. We do observe the teaching. And so the lever that he tries to use on Christian people doesn't work in our case because we do observe the silence of women in the worship of the church. Let's go to the fourth reason that he gives here. Because God made Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. All right. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 1. Through three, this is where this happens. The creation section of the Bible, those first three chapters, is designed to explain to us who we are, what we're doing, where we're going, who's in charge, and what we're supposed to be uh, busy doing, and uh, how we're to relate to the one who's in, in control, and how we're supposed to relate to one another. The foundation for all of human society is laid right there in Genesis 1 through 3 an explanation about our world and how it works. It's all right there. And that was the purpose of it. And in, this, uh, in these three chapters back in Genesis, God makes observations about his creation. At the end of each day of creation, he says, uh, you'll read this little editorial comment, 
And God saw that what he had made was good. And there was evening and there was morning the first day, the second day, the third day, the fourth day, the fifth day. Almost after every day, God stops and stands back and says, man, that's good. (laughs) Uh, And that's not bragging. It was good. He looks at everything that he's done and he says, that's good. And then you come over to Genesis chapter 2, and it's long about verse 16. God saw something in his creation that was not good. Oops. And so he decides to do something about it. He looks at, at, at Adam and he says, it's not good for man to be alone. I'll make him a helper suitable for him, appropriate for him. And he made Eve. And God knew that Eve was the answer to Adam's problem. What was making it not good? He didn't have Eve. And if, if Eve had existed first, if God had made Eve first, God would have looked at Eve and said, it's not good for a woman to be alone. I'll make for her a helper fit for her. There's a complementary nature that exists between uh, a man and a woman. And God understood that that's, that was what the need was. It, what, the, Adam did not need Steve. Adam needed Eve. Moses looks at all of this. Moses is the one who writes this section of the Bible. It's given to him by inspiration. And as he has observed the creation of Adam and Eve and all that happened there and the creation of their relationship, at the end of chapter 2, he makes this comment that is now applied by Jesus and the apostles to marriage. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. He understands that what God did in the very beginning here was to create marriage, a relationship between God and man. So um, this, well, you know what? I forgot to go ahead and read all this that was said here. <clears throat> Got to go back to the, go back to the chart. Because God made Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. Now, the next comment that he makes, his response to that is, that was when the earth was populated, uh, populated, uh, was, wasn't populated. There are now 6.79 billion people. Uh, breeding clearly isn't an issue anymore. And he seems to say that because we have a lot of people now, that what God has said about Adam and Eve and all this business about marriage is, is no longer operable. It no longer matters because we've got plenty of people to make other people along the way. Um, what I'm saying is there's more to marriage than just procreation. There is a complementary nature. There's something that a man needs from a woman and a woman needs from a man, not just the, the sexual aspect, but there's something emotionally something spiritually that they give to each other, something that's important to both of them. And when God needed a companion, he made a companion suitable, that they would be suitable for each other. That's God's explanation. It's not just about procreation. It's about who is suitable for each other. So God made Adam and Eve, and he didn't make Adam and Steve. I I think that's a, a fair a fair uh, argument, a fair comment to make. Let's go to the fifth reason here on our chart. He says, because the Bible clearly defines marriage as one woman, one man, and one woman. So here he, his response to that is this, wrong. 
the Bible also defines marriage as one man, many women, one man, many wives, and many concubines, a rapist and his victim, and conquering soldiers and female prisoners of war. Now, I have to admit that all that stuff shows up in the Old Testament. It, it's there. Uh, I mean, just think about Solomon, 700 wives and 300 concubines. And uh, the, the patriarchs all had uh, multiple wives and concubines to go along with. All, all that's there, but that's never held up as the ideal, as the standard for, for marriage. Not by God, not by Jesus. Not by any of the apostles. Whenever they want to explain to you what marriage is about, they always go back to the beginning. When it was Adam and Eve. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they too shall become one flesh. Now, of course people who are pushing for same-sex marriage can never admit, can never admit this. They don't want to hear it. They don't want to think about it. And their way of thinking, what I have said this morning, is hate speech. Uh, and for me to even read these verses to you and for us to make reference to verses like this in the Bible is considered hate speech in, in their minds. Um, as I say, it is true that there are uh, these relationships are, are, are mentioned there, but uh, in Old Testament, but they're not held up as the standard. And there's one other thing I want to add here because I think this is important. In Ephesians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul has a lot to say to husbands and wives. Of all the uh, places in the Bible where marriage is discussed, this is the most full discussion, the most full uh, teaching that you're going to find about husbands and wives. And as you go through, starting at Ephesians 5 and 21, and reading on through the end, down to verse 31 or 32, quite, quite often Paul makes reference to Christ in the church when he tries to explain to a man and a woman how they're supposed to treat one another. He said, this is like Christ in the church. He does that all the way through. And then he gets to the very end here, and I want to read these words to you. This is the, uh, uh, these are from Ephesians 5, 28 through 32. As he's kind of winding things down here. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. Because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then he says, this mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. What, what Paul sees a, a similarity between uh, the marriage of a man and a woman who have been joined together in one flesh. And it's, we're talking about good marriages now. I know there are some marriages that are awful. <laughs> they don't make it. But when it's right, man, it's really right. <laughs> and, and what happens, that bond, uh, that spiritual, emotional bond, that loving and caring and all that that exists between a man and a woman, when marriage is what it ought to be, the sacrifice, the concern for, for one another, when that's right, he says, man, you're very close to what it means, what it's like between Christ and his bride, the church. He says, this mystery is great but I'm speaking with reference to Christ in the church. And all I want to say, uh, you know, Paul says, you have some insight into the relationship between Christ and the church when you observe a marriage that's right. Same-sex marriage can never represent accurately, legitimately, scripturally, the relationship between Christ and his church. That's, 
That's pretty much unthinkable. Here's the last reason. The last reason is, uh, he said, why do you think that homosexual relationships are, are still sinful? And he said, and he thinks this is going on in our, in our minds because it just disgusts me. Dang it. Though so he says, props for being honest. However, a whole population of people shouldn't have uh, their families discriminated against just because you think gay sex is icky. Grow up. All right. There are some aspects of homosexual practice that are disgusting. And for that matter, I've known some things that happen between heterosexual couples that are disgusting, okay, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> but I can't get into all that stuff here because it's disgusting, all right? But seriously, do you think that the reason Paul wrote against homosexual practice is because it was disgusting to him? That, that's what it's all about, just disgusting to him. He wrote as an apostle of Christ, guided into all the truths by the Holy Spirit. He said the things that Jesus would have said himself if Jesus had remained here upon earth, if Jesus had been physically present to face these situations and to talk about them himself. The reason I am opposed to homosexual relationships and homosexual practice is because the word of God says it's wrong. It's no bigger or no smaller than that. That's just it. If God had said homosexual relationships are okay, that they're good, I'd just make myself deal with the aspects of homosexual relationship that I think are disgusting. I'd just make myself get over it and deal with it. But I think that Christian people oppose homosexual relationship not because it's disgusting, but because God has simply condemned it as sinful. Now, I want to say this before we, before we leave this. A lot of people in the homosexual community view us as the enemy. We are not the enemy. Um, I don't know how to explain it, but I, I, I'll just say this. We, we certainly mean those who are into this kind of thing any harm. God has never given us the permission to abuse or to disrespect or to uh, mistreat anyone. I don't care who they are. He's never given us permission to do that. He's always telling us to love our neighbors, to love people who, uh, who, who are with us. But he also tells us, he says, hey, on the other hand, uh, you cannot, if you love someone and they're doing wrong, maybe you ought to tell them. Maybe that would be the most loving thing you could do. Find a way, find a time, find a place. Find somehow where you can say something, in a, but speak the truth in love. And so I, I, I guess that's, I just want to say that before we, before we leave this this morning. There's no good place to quit on this. I mean, there's so much more to what I could possibly cover here. I do want to come back tonight in the auditorium class, continue uh, maybe the discussion by letting you ask questions, make comments, whatever. We'll read some excerpts from some of the articles that I've uh, referenced in our, our, um, our little sheet back there on the table. I also put a copy of the sheet here. I know you can't read the print on some of this because it's too small, but uh, there's, there's the sheet that gives you the whole thing, and you can see, uh, see what it's about yourself. Or maybe just go to Facebook. But I promise you, it'll be worth your time to come back and be a part, be a part of the class. 
Now, here's what I want to say. Uh, you ever hear the saying, all hands on deck? Right now is when every Christian needs to be available on deck. And I know so many people, so many people who have made professions of faith or whatever, that now are kind of hiding in the bushes and in the tall grass. They're spiritual people. They have faith, whatever. But it's not those people who are going to be under attack. It's the visible church, the visible Christian, the people who go to a place to meet, the people who are, are, are uh, you know, in a place like this. We're the ones who have the crosshairs on our back, and we probably are going to experience some things along the way. And what I want to say to the people who are, who are kind of, they're spiritual people, but they've kind of left any involvement with the church, is you need to come out of the grass, <laughs> You need to come over here because it's, it's all hands on deck. Join with us. Don't, don't just sit there in the grass and say, uh, you know, they're not going to come after you because you're being quiet and you're hiding. It's the people who actually get in their cars, go someplace, walk in. Those are the people that the community is watching. And you know what I hear about this place uh, fairly often? People say, hey, boy, you guys always have a good crowd down there. They're looking at Sunday morning, I like it. The parking lot's always full. And I said, yeah, but you know what those people need to see now? They need to see the parking lot full, the grass full, everything filled up all the way back to the airport and on out the road that way. That's what they need to see now. And I'm just saying to people who are hiding in the tall grass, come on over here. Get with us. Be visible. Because the more of us who become visible, I think there is something about numbers that matters. All right. Come back tonight. I, I, maybe there's someone here who uh, wants to become a Christian this morning. That would be great. We're going to sing this hymn of invitation. We're inviting you to come in faith and repentance, ready to confess that faith, ready to be baptized in the name of Christ. And you can leave here a Christian. That would be wonderful. And maybe there's someone who just, uh, as a Christian, needs to repent. We invite.